Air pollution in South Asia is a problem that's traditionally received very little domestic or international attention. But it's an extremely complex problem. It's one that needs to be looked at from a number of different perspectives. From the scientific angle, from the policy angle, and often incorporating specific cultural considerations that characterize what this problem looks like in the region of South Asia. So any successful action for air quality management will require a consideration of all of these different factors. Now, after the air pollution crisis continued to choke cities across South Asia last winter, the World Bank decided to finally release its report, Striving for Clean Air, that aims, in a sense, to do just this. Welcome to part one of two for very special collaboration that the Global Get Down team has conducted with the World Bank's air quality management team in South Asia. We discussed the report, Striving for Clean Air, on how best to combat the deteriorating condition of air pollution in the region which encompasses India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal, but also parts of Afghanistan and Iran. This episode, co-hosts Gaurav and Thalan introduce the contentious topic of air pollution management and how we'll have to transcend political boundaries in this region with our very special guests, Jostein Nygaard and Sayantan Sarkar. We talked to them about the approach that they followed in this report. We discussed the basic economic, social, and political implications of this regional crisis, and also the unique character that the problem is demonstrating in South Asia. For anyone interested in getting a closer look at what this report says, they can find a link in the description to this report. So based off of this report that we've read, just to introduce this entire issue of air pollution and air quality management, I was wondering if there are any roadmaps we have anything to work with. So for example, I know Josie and Mr. Nygaard, in a strategy session meeting from 2021 that I saw somewhere online, you spoke of this clean air 2030 vision for all of South Asia. Is this vision, is it something that's still on the table? And what exactly do you mean by clean air? Is it, do we have a certain unit that we're working with? Do we have a certain aim similar to, let's say, the NDCs for climate change? Thank you for your question and for us participating in in the podcast here and and thank you for arranging this event so yes when you are referring to the clean air 2030 vision for south asia this is something that a process that we went through with each of the eight countries in south asia in the process of developing this report, striving for clean air in this region. So what we thought we would try is to set a vision or set a target within about 10 years where the countries, the region can reach reasonably improved air quality. And since somehow this, what we are referring to as the World Health Organization, WHO's interim targets, they are setting interim targets in a kind of a sequenced order from not too much improved air to much more improved air and to what they are defining as their preferred air quality standards. So we agreed or reach the common understanding that by 2030, the countries in South Asia would be able to reach what we are referring to as the interim target one of 35 micrograms per cubic meter values of particulate matter 2.5. And we talked that based upon ongoing progress in the region, as well as 
good experiences from other parts of the world, that this would be a realistic target. It's somehow ambitious, but still being realistic. So what we define as clean air in this context is really to reach this first level of, of standard that also are very much in line with the country's own ambient air quality standards. It's not really clean air, but it's an improved air quality that at least will bring the countries further forward and where we will have substantive improvement in health conditions and so on. And Sayantan, anything to add? Yeah, no, just to reinforce what Jostan said, I think the key words here are ambition and realism, right? And you need to hit a right balance to make sure that the policymakers engaged in the air pollution PC uh, goalpost that's achievable within a given time frame. It also has to be the targets have to be set in a very scientific manner. And we see that achieving the interim target one would yield significant health gains. And that's an important benchmark goalpost for policymakers in the region to strive towards as an initial step towards improving air quality across the region. And just to make clear the sort of scope of this research, of this report, we're talking of, I believe, the Indo-Gangetic plain. So could you define very quickly what that area encompasses, what countries it encompasses, and what the region sort of looks like geographically? Yeah, so actually, the report itself is for the whole South Asia. So it's from, at that time, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, and, and, and the Maldives, all the eight countries in what we are referring to as over South Asia region. However, and as you see in the report, that where you have the most serious challenge of air quality is in what we are defining as the Indo-Gangetic Plain. Then going from the Punjab province in Pakistan through all the north, the, the, the six states in India from Punjab state, Haryana, Delhi, Uttar Pradesh, Jharkhand, Bihar, West Bengal, and all the way into Bangladesh, about 2,000 kilometers from west to east, and also parts of the plain area of in Nepal. 875 million people living in this plain area. So, so that is the main focus. But the, again, the, 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 the focus from the beginning is the entire South Asia because all the eight countries wanted to participate in the process. Before you mentioned the whole ambition versus realism thing. So your approach seems to base itself extensively on the twin concepts of spatial interdependence and airshed-wide management. Could you please illustrate what these terms could mean for us and why this is more uh, pragmatic than following a simple locally-based approach? So what we mean by spatial interdependence and airshed management is simply that air pollution cannot be tackled at a single geography within the Indo-Gangetic Plains area. What we mean by an airshed is an area that encompasses all the sources that affect the air pollution within a region. So when we talk about the Indo-Gangetic Plain region, it's important for us to understand that pollution being generated in, say, the western part of the overall IGP airshed has the potential to pollute 
uh, states or cities downstream as well due to the topography, geography, air chemistry, wind direction, etc. Right. Uh, so there is definite dependence that we see that regions, particular individual regions within the Indo-Gangetic Plain Asia have on each other. Uh, and as we explore further, as you, we will explore further, we will understand how sort of some of these interdependencies can be turned into an opportunity to reduce air pollution more cost effectively across the region. Analysis that the World Bank and its partners have carried out show us that although a lot of the emphasis on tackling air pollution at the moment in South Asia and also in many other parts of the world historically, are focused on a city-based approach. But we have, if, if you actually look at the pollution profile of individual cities, you will see particularly in the IGP area that more than 50% of the pollution in many of these cities actually come from outside its own territory or its jurisdiction. So naturally, there is a dependence that the city then has on sort of cities or states uh, upstream or upwind to it. So this is what we mean by spatial interdependence. And as we go forward, we'll explore further how this interdependence can be turned into an opportunity for collaboration and cooperation across the region, which the bank is uh, trying to support as well. I think this is uh, very well elaborated, perhaps just to say that an airshed, when we use that terminology of an airshed, we mean basically a geographic area that is surrounded by mountains, hills and others. So the basic source of the pollution comes from inside that geographic area because the pollution that basically get trapped in that geographic setting. And this is very, very, you know, this is a very strong feature in, in South Asia and particularly in the Indo-Gangetic Plain because you have the Himalayas to the north and then you have the hills in the central part of India and central part of Asia. So you get that kind of a tunnel in between where the pollution get trapped. And that feature is very strong. You have similar kind of typography and airsheds south of you in California, for example. Similar, but at larger scale here. And so just to clarify, in your report, you spoke of six different airsheds, which have been divided based on the potential for air pollutant sources traveling in between these these airsheds. So these airsheds, have they been restricted to a single country or did they transcend national borders? And what are the implications of that in this case? A combination. Some of the airsheds, like we have defined, are specific, for example, to India. That's southwest of the Indo-Gangetic Plain, in the Chhattisgarh and Odisha area, towards West Bengal, you have a clear area, a valley, more or less, that has three states as part of it. On the other side, in the in the western part of India, in Maharashtra, Gujarat, and in the coastal areas there, you have clearly an airshed. You have in the northern part of Pakistan and so on. All these airsheds are a little bit smaller. And again, it's because of the typography. It's that the air pollution get trapped in these geographic areas. But the main international airshed, that is really in the Indo-Gangetic Plain, where we define the western part that really covers the, the, um, the Punjab province in Pakistan and Punjab state in India. Then you have the central part of the plain, 
where you have Uttar Pradesh and Bihar states in India that shares the airship with the southern part, the plain areas of Nepal. And then you have the whole West Bengal, Bangladesh area. So these three distinct, we can define them as sub-airships where you really have, clearly have, you know, two countries in each of the airships, you know, or these sub-airships, where we need to find solutions for air quality management that also go across national boundaries. Um, the World Bank report also mentions that exposure to air pollution at these toxic levels, concentrations of fine particulate matter of uh, 2.5 level, which is way higher than what the World Health Organization considers healthy, which is five microgram per uh, cubic meters. This exposure to these levels of uh, toxicity in these several South Asian cities lowers productive capacity and accounts for lost days worked. What exactly does this mean? And are these losses primarily in the short term in the sense that will we see the consequences, the negative consequences of these uh, actions in the in the near future in 10 years? Or like, are they more long term in the sense that they'll take a generation or so for us to see? Mm. Yeah, if I should have a first <laughs> first go on your question. The toxicity in the particles or in the air increases. You know, when we are defining the toxicity in, for example, in PM 2.5, reaching so and so many micrograms, 10 micrograms, 15 micrograms, 20, 30, 40, 50, and so on, it means that the particles that you breathe are more and more toxic. The toxicity increases. So what we basically see from the report is that we estimate that because the current level of particles throughout South Asia is so and so high, about 2 million people dies prematurely throughout the South Asia region because of the high toxicity. Then, in particularly when we are, this, we are talking about the Indo-Gangetic Plain, since this is most polluted with the highest air pollution concentration, highest toxicity in the particles, about one third, about 750,000 uh, people die in that geographic area, according to our estimation, prematurely because of the high toxicity. Okay, so then the question, okay, will this have immediate effect or has it long-term effect? And it's clearly a combination because on one hand, when you have a very polluted day and you are breathing or we try to prevent the breathing of the very polluted air, you may stay home, you know, so, so you do not contribute to a production necessarily that day, at least as we had it earlier, when you physically are going to your job. So for example, in India, they have an air quality index where they tell the people that if the air pollution is so and so polluted, or the air is so and so polluted, you have to stay home and so on and so. So you have a productivity impact in immediately, but at the same time, you are also accumulating in your body the effect of breathing polluted air over longer periods. So you may shorten your lifetime, time one year, two year, three years, so you die earlier 
And this, of course, have a longer impact both on your personally and the overall economy in the society. So it's really that combination between the immediate impact and the long-term impact. And it has an impact both of you, yourself, your family, your working unit, and the society overall. So it's that combination that we really try to to describe here in, in, in the report. And yeah, just to reiterate the fact that it's it both in the short term and the long term that we need to think. I mean, in terms of sort of policy decisions, it's important to look at it in the short term and the long term perspective, but also in terms of sort of the personal response towards air pollution, you need to be aware of how pollution is affecting you on a daily basis, right? So that's also important to take sort of preventive measures as much as possible, particularly for vulnerable groups people with pre-existing respiratory conditions, children, pregnant women, people with conditions like asthma. I think I think it's important for them to look at air pollution from a short-term perspective as well as in the long term. So it's clear that at least from an economic perspective, because we've listed out all of these costs, I'm sure if any of our listeners want to read more extensively into this, they can check out the report, which we provided a link in the description to. When we're talking of something that has economic costs, the most intuitive way to understand it is its monetary value. If we can put actual figures, let's say rupee values because of, well, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, or dollar values in the sense to understand the full extent of all of these costs, let's say healthcare, etc. So have these costs been monetized by you and by your researchers in this report? Or is it impossible to give accurate estimates of, let's say, dollar or rupee amounts of all of these costs in the near term and the long term? Yeah. Now, so we are using basically a standard methodology. Uh, in monetar- monetarizing the the cost in money terms, in economic terms. So what we have been doing is that we have used, for example, first of all, we define what is the physical impact on human health, for example, and then we have tried to set a price on this. And we have you know, applied a number of studies, used studies from around the world and in India, where we have also looked at what is the willingness to pay for the various population groups in order to prevent uh, health impact from air pollution. So this we have applied extensively and we have been referring to this uh, in the in the report that that is one thing the second thing is that we have also monetarized the investments that it would cost in order to improve the air quality so we have put an economic value on what will it cost to do these and these interventions, that we have the interventions in the transportation sector, in the industry sector, in energy and so on, and then put a price on what that total investment cost will be. So we somehow try to compare what is the cost, the economic cost, of the impact from air pollution compared to what is the cost of investing in the abatement policies in order to improve the air quality. So that, that's the basic yeah. methodology that we have applied. And, and that is somehow a standard economic 
uh, estimation method. Yeah. And the report provides a range of starting from around seven and a half thousand dollars to around sixty-eight thousand dollars, depending on sort of policy choices that policymakers make as the average cost per life saved. And it could sort of vary within that range depending on policy options the country or the state goes for. And I remember reading this term even in the report where it spoke of payments for ecosystem services and maybe using that metric as to help monetize these pollution costs. So would you have, would the costs of this be borne primarily by states, by national governments, or would it be individual taxpayers that you would recommend be, well, invited to help pay for these abatement costs? Do it's it's a combination, and it depends also on the sectors and which schemes that is being put in place in order to bring down the air pollution. I, I think that a lot, if you take industry and transportation, why the government may have investments to put the infrastructure in place to, to be able to do the abatements, but in by and large in most sectors the 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 main investment has to be carried out and borne by the by the private sector and by individuals but you need a lot of in many times the upfront cost in order to get the infrastructure in place and that is where i think the, the government and their investment needs to play a main role. And also where we as an institution comes in many times more in the upstream piloting demonstrations, get the infrastructure in place before the individuals and the private sector and large comes in. But we have not estimated yet what would be the total investment envelope by the government at the federal level and the state level versus, let's say, the private investors. That is somehow still to be made. But I think the principle is as as we just described here. It's an important message to the government, both federal and state, that when we come up with the investment needs here, we are not talking about entirely government, but the, the investment that it needs to be carried out by the governments. So to better understand what these sources are, I know that the report spoke essentially of sources and air pollution, this phenomena where these sources are somehow unique to South Asia, or even if they are well prevalent in air pollution instances in the rest of the world, they're not as important in these other cases. So could you elaborate on what these different sources of air pollution are, specifically the ones that are unique in South Asia, and could you speak to why that is? Why these aren't prevalent in the rest of the world? Yeah, uh, maybe I can have a start with this first. Just and I think typically the sources that we refer to here, Gaurav, in terms of being unique to South Asia, uh, would encompass sources like domestic and commercial cooking based on biomass-based fuels, right? At large scale, millions and millions of units of pollution. Uh, need to be, need to sort of be cognizant of the numbers here. It's huge. Uh, then there is solid waste management, which is not always uh, adopting or applying or able to apply a cradle-to-grave approach where there are leakages in the system. That means the garbage or the waste isn't collected very properly or disposed very properly, and that leads to burning of the waste. That's also an important and unique contributor. And then we also see small, unorganized industrial contributions, specifically take an example, the brick in the region are a huge 
uh, sort of contributed to air pollution, which are which are pretty typical to this region. Now, this is confluence of a variety of factors, right? It is not just one one issue that we can pinpoint towards on why it is like this in South Asia and may not be in other parts of the world. But there are sort of issues that are linked to sort of income levels, for example. There are issues linked to sort of governance of particular uh, sectors, for example, waste management that needs to be looked at. For the industrial side, it's the cost of the fuel and also sort of uh, understanding a monitoring and regulatory regime that can be implemented to solve these issues, right? If you see in India, primarily we have good laws or good regulations, uh, and not just in India, maybe from uh, from the South Asia perspective as well. We have we have the regulations, we have uh, the laws set in, uh, we have national clean air programs in Pakistan, in India, I think Bangladesh is preparing one as well. However, there is a, a gap when we see you see in the implementation levels uh, in terms of what actually there is on paper and what is being deployed on the ground. So that's also an important factor to consider here. Some of these sources are also driven by behavioral aspects, right? In terms of cooking energy choices. We have seen in India, there's been a big, a big push towards adoption of uh, LPG as a source for cooking in a number of cities and states uh, across the country. While there has been a good uptake initially, but there have also been sort of reports of certain cultural aspects where people do not want to adopt a new mode of cooking altogether and stick to sort of the practices that they've been following for decades on. Number of factors that we need to look into in terms of understanding why these sources are prevalent particularly in, in South Asia. You know, we have worked on air quality management in a number of countries in different regions. And we are used to that the main pollution sources are industry, power plants, okay. transportation, large-scale sources. And, and, you know, we have worked a lot on the schemes to be able to tackle these sources. But one thing we have realized when we, when we started to work in South Asia and as described in Sayantan is that because of the high, also very high population density in, in South Asia, even compared with China, where we used to, to work, the population density is perhaps three times higher. And that means that all the smalls, even they are small, per unit, but because the density is so high, together the accumulated and of source contribution are very high. So, so it's not necessarily that not the other regions not have uh, cooking challenges, household biomass burning, and so on and so on, but it's too much less, um, I don't, the, the, the quantity is much less, because you have much uh, smaller or, or lower population densities. So it took us a little bit time, honestly, when we started in India and the sign of a program to really understand these dimensions. But I think we are getting there uh, to somehow revise the understanding of how we are designing of a program because of this somehow change structure, that you have a very polluted society at a relatively low income level in South Asia compared with what we are used to in, 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 in other countries and regions. 
And so, so what this sounds like at the base of it is when you're differentiating South Asian air pollution as a crisis from the rest of the world, it seems like the main factor, at least one of the main factors is the population. And in terms of air pollution specifically, I know generally there are a lot of statistics that have been floated around for the past couple of decades about broad illiteracy in the region, but there's also this issue of general ignorance specifically about air pollution in this region. So because this is sort of a problem at the grassroots, I'm assuming there'd be solutions that have to be implemented at the grassroots in terms of increasing awareness and just reducing this general ignorance about the pitfalls of air pollution. So how would you say this can best be combated in the region of South Asia? Yeah, I, I think there, that we have yeah. a number of very good experiences and we see the same here in India and other parts, Pakistan, Bangladesh, is that true comprehensive information campaigns because you need to do you need to explain what air pollution is you you need to explain what impact this has as we have discussed on your health condition on your economy and so on and i think basically just comprehensive information campaigns you saw that in china you saw it in mongolia you saw it in vietnam you have seen it in other parts of the world has worked quite well in 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 just informing the population at large which is important because the population need to put pressure and request clean air and in order to this they need to understand the dimension so that's one thing i think the second thing and where india is is pretty good is 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 also to make national missions for setting goals for how the society is going to provide universal sanitation, universal LPG uh, schemes and so on that Sayantan was working to. So somehow the, the, the population at large get into that mood of improving actually the interventions that is needed also in order to improve air quality. But I think there is still a, a job to do here in somehow linking several of these missions to air quality. They are developing, hopefully, a new mission on air quality in India and hopefully it's going to be promulgated. But I also think linking the current national missions that have been developed over the last seven, eight, nine years, which are very good, but to link them to air pollution would also enhance the understanding of, of air quality in the population at large. Yeah, so it's it's an absolutely sort of vital issue to, to look at. And as we were discussing the Swachh Bharat mission, the national sanitation mission, for example, I mean, in India has been a great example, a great revelation of how change can be brought to the ground level in a relatively short period of time, right? Through strong, big, large-scale community engagement programs. And I think scale is the word here, right? I think there have been sort of pilots with clean cooking, for example, as a solution that has been done in many parts of the region uh, over the years. Uh, but it hasn't really been done at a scale that would have an impact, a telling impact on, on pollution levels uh, to an extent that we can say that this sector is no longer an important polluter. So scale is of paramount importance. And just to also drive home the point that it is, of course, an issue of information gap, right? But it's also an issue of investment gap. We have to be aware of that too, that simply uh, making people aware of sort of certain solutions would probably not sort of see us have the level of 
pollution cuts that we want to see. It's also an issue of affordability. It's an issue of investment. Uh, so when we talk about transitioning to cleaner fuels, we need to understand in this global climate where we saw gas prices rise through the past year, how would it impact the bottom of the pyramid in terms of affording cleaner or accessing cleaner fuel, right? Same goes for sort of smaller industries that really have very tight balance sheets and have little wriggle room to adopt the latest and the best technology out there from an affordability or an investment perspective. And that is where I think the private sector and sort of governments and international development organizations need to step up and uh, make sure that there are investments available you know, for taking uh, taking on some of the costs of the transition that's required. So it's no doubt that the benefits of uh, tackling air pollution, the benefits far would far exceed the costs of it. And um, not just the economic benefits, but also healthcare and as such. So what are the different aims that could be achieved by local as opposed to cross-border approaches? And what does a cross-border approach contribute to air quality management? Yeah, so I, I thank you for the question. I think that this is some of the main points of the report. And the main message we have, perhaps the most critical, is that each jurisdiction or each state of what we are referring to as source regions, in, for example, the Indo-Gangetic Plain, cannot subsist substantively improve their air quality. They can up to a certain level, but they cannot fully achieve, you know, a clean air or cleaner air situation by themselves. That's impossible because of the nature that we have described, the transportation of the pollution throughout the entire airshed area and so on. So what we basically say is that you each state each source region, each jurisdiction, you can improve so and so much. You can do some improvement, perhaps you can improve 30%, 40% and so on of your air quality. But in order to fully improve extensively your air quality and reach the standards, what we are referring to, you have to rely upon positive spillovers from your other neighboring state, okay? And it will be simply too costly when, when you talk about the money terms. Even you are applying all the technical possibilities that you may have, all the technical options, you can only improve your air quality up to a certain level. It will be much, much more cost-effective. You will reduce substantively your investment cost per jurisdiction, per state, per province, by working together, and then read you can reach the the, the clean air conditions or situations as, as we have described it here. So and you can do it quicker. So basically overestimation is that if the states, the jurisdictions, the provinces work together, you can reduce about the investment cost in half and you can reach these intended target levels. So I think this is a main message of the report, and we need to continuously work on somehow shifting the mindsets of our dialogue partners here in the region 
to fully capture this. And it's going well. You know, they, they are gradually getting this, but it's on an ongoing process. But it's one thing we are, you know, emphasizing time again is that through this report and over work, a critical issue is to change the mindsets and getting these understandings that you can do it quicker and it's much more cost-effective through collaboration. To continue from that, does the report and your research recommend more local or cross-border approaches to air quality management or a combination of the two and which are more realistic for successful implementation with regards to uh, cost effectivity and more? Right, right. So, so you know, one thing we have learned, um, also from our ongoing work in South Asia, but also in other regions, is that the current interventions, the current action plans, the current policies by the governments are mostly local focused. That you have a focus on cities, urban agglomerations, that basically the current action plans are designed to improve what we are referring to as the non-attainment area. And the non-attainment area here are mostly non-attainment cities. Like you have 132 non-attainment cities in, in, in India and, and a similar thinking in Pakistan and Bangladesh. What we have learned is that we don't want necessarily to change what the government already is doing of good work, focusing on, let's say, the cities and the urban agglomeration. They already have policies for this. But what we say is that you need to integrate this in a larger macro context where you develop the plans for the states and overall regions. So you have to develop these regional state plans. You need to design investments, how you are moving in investments into each of the states in India, in the Indo-Gangetic Plain, and so on and so on. That has to be done. But at the same time, you don't want to undermine the ongoing policies that has very much focused on the city level. And this is not necessarily something that is special for South Asia. China went through the same process, starting out defining 100, 122 cities. They invested in this, they made the plan, but then they understood we need to move, you know, to the larger regional level, airshed level. You had the same process in the US, you had the same process in Europe. So it's somehow the same dynamics here, but very critical. You cannot reach and the targets for the overall areas without taking that that rather airshed and, and regional approach. I think just to uh, further elaborate on this, I think, and maybe the question was also referring to this, that there is an element of cooperation between sort of jurisdictions within a country, but also there are some instances where the collaboration or cooperation or information exchange at the very basic level is also required beyond international boundaries, right? And we see this particularly important uh, at the western and eastern extremes of the Indo-Gangetic Plain airship, particularly the provinces of Punjab in Pakistan and the Punjab state in India. They have a strong interdependence there. Uh, almost 30 to 40 percent of the pollution we see coming into the uh, region is from a different part, from the other part of the country, right? From the other country, essentially, 
similarly, in the Bangladesh region, we see there are inflows from India and with sort of changes in the wind direction, we see there is also backflows from Bangladesh towards India. So it adds a level of sort of complexity, but also uh, proposes or poses an opportunity in terms of having a international dialogue on air quality in this region, which is also an important part that we need to touch upon. So we need to uh, make sure that the city level interventions are being implemented properly that are already underway. We need to ensure that that is elevated to a state level where we are also taking action on sort of rural or peri-urban sources that may be not within the city boundaries. And at the same time, we need to be aware if there are inflows from international regions that are coming in and how do we engage in a dialogue to understand how best we can reduce sort of these inflows of pollution as well. So it's a three-tiered, I think, approach that, that needs to be implemented. It's through collaboration and joint interventions that you improve the overall situation and that each entity, each jurisdiction is benefiting from this. You see the same in the North China plain area also now that you have similar mechanisms that is being applied in order to improve the air quality for the overall. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this was part one of our very special collaboration with the World Bank Group. Join Holland and I on our next episode, part two, where we go deeper into some of these issues surrounding airshed-wide management in South Asia. In part two, we also discuss some of the solutions that this report puts forward. We hope to see you again there. And for anyone interested in reading the entire report, but slightly over 100 pages, you can find the link in our description. Goodbye for now, and thank you.